Hello, and welcome to Book Reviews Kill, a podcast about fantasy, sci-fi, and horror novels. I'm Chad. And I'm Evan. And you are listening to our recap of The Arm of the Sphinx, book two in the Books of Babel Quartet by Josiah Bancroft. Okay, so we've read quite a few books and quite a few series already on this podcast. And they've all been delightful. They've all been great. They've all been amazing. Um, what do we have here? Um, I think my favorite book series of all time, perhaps. Oh my god, this is really, really good. This is incredible. You know what? That first book is like pretty good. Pretty good. This is taking it up so many notches. As oh. many notches as there are ringdoms in the Tower of Babel. <laughs> Ooh, well said. Wow. Well said. Yeah, like the first book ascended to the extremely excellent tier along with Senlin. And this second book has reached out its sphinxy little arm, seized my heart and imagination, and I find myself a helpless observer along for the ride, unwilling as I am unable to prevent myself from consuming the rest. It is so good. I can't. I'm a, I was like mad at the end of this book. Yeah. I was so I was just like, I'm never going to be this good of a writer ever. <laughs> It's just I could put so many this this man is is so talented. I'm delighted and yet sad every page I turn because it's like one page I'm never going to be able to read for the first time again. And that is <laughs> the mark of a really good book. And I mean, this sounds like incredibly high praise, but this it feels very deserved. There's so many points in this book where I was I like rolled my eyes. I was just like, I can't like, yep, there's another beautiful, amazing line. It's just so well crafted. And as the book keeps going on, things just start falling in place. You're like, did you really think of that in the first? How are you? How did you put all this together? I right. just can't believe it. It's just it, there's nothing in these books that can be taken out. No, it's airtight. And they're long. This was a long book. And the next two are even longer. Yeah. Then there it's not just good writing. It's a great story and it's like philosophically sound and deep. Yeah, and it has so some much. parts it's in it. It's got that everything. It does. I stop a few times. I'm like, man, what a what a deep sentence. And he'll like right. do these little observances. We'll get to some quotes later, but he'll do these little observances that are just one sentence of utter awesomeness. Brilliance. Brilliance. It's like this steampunk fever dream that all just there's so many folds and so much intrigue and so many like personal stories happening the secondary characters in this book are blossoming to like main character status whenever they're on the page everything feels yeah. so well realized and well realized in such an amazingly unique way this is easily unique one of the most unique the things that i've ever read and typically i like books for their uniqueness but it's hard to make like a top book, like a really, really good that's just different than anything else that I've read. But this, Josiah did it. It's so funny because like I just made this video on TikTok where I talked about Berserk and I was, I, I'm in love with it. And I and I went hard and just told everybody it was like one of the best things I've ever read. Did you put a warning content, uh, content warning did, in there? Yeah, I had <laughs> nice. to, but I was just heaping praise onto it. And now I think that if someone watched that video and then they came and watched this episode quickly after, it's like, does this guy just <laughs> he love loves everything? everything? No, I'm just in a hot streak right now where I'm reading Berserk and I just so happen to be reading the books of Babel. And it has a personality. Like the book is funny. Yeah. But not in a slapstick way that takes away from it. Some authors are like, okay, I can't really take your 
book seriously because it's so funny. This isn't that. Like I've laughed and cried. Yeah. This is and the the ending. Oh my god. Oh my gosh. That kicked my ass. It kicked my ass too. Yeah. I was not it, ready for that. Oh my gosh. It changed so often. I remember you we were talking like somewhere I was a couple hundred pages ahead of you and you were like how's the book doing and I hadn't reached the ending like sequence yet and I was like man it just continues to get so good and then like the next day I wrote I was like I wish I could have that conversation again because it's so good now I know I was kind of like behind most I actually read like 200 pages of it today dude nice (laughs) yeah crushed it out but yeah instead of just sitting here and heaping praise on this for an hour and a half, which we probably could do, but it'd get a little boring. Let's just go straight into the recap and start picking at the stuff that we really enjoyed, the stuff that we're thinking about, the things that maybe we didn't quite understand, and we'll start pulling everything apart. And all the terrible stuff. Wait, there was none of that. <laughs> yeah, I have no, I really honestly have no criticisms at all about this. Me neither. And, you know, you could, you, maybe you'll exit out of the podcast immediately when you hear me say that because maybe that's not as interesting. But I've, I, if I had it, we'd talk about it. But I just don't really. I mean, I've got questions, I've got predictions, but honestly, this is, this is incredible. This is really, really good. Yeah, this is a masterful piece of art. Here we go again. <laughs> yeah. Is this just like Bancroft's debut? Uh, I'm pretty, uh, to the best of my knowledge. Yeah. Holy shit. <laughs> I know. All right. Let's, uh, let's do it. Let's just. All uh, right. Let's do it, baby. <laughs> the book begins aboard the Stone Cloud, captained by Senlin and crewed by Adam, Voletta, Aaron, and Edith as his first mate. Lacking funds and piloting a ship in constant need of repairs, the group has resorted to pirating the airships languishing around the tower. Exposed to high levels of the drug White Crumb, Senlin is seeing hallucinations of Maria who he feels is acting as his conscience. The crew is unaware of his affliction as they dock in the windsock to visit a man named Artuna. Senlin asks Artuna to provide him with introduction papers to enter Pelthia. Artuna refuses, but refers Senlin to his mother. Back on the stone cloud, Edith pilfers the ship log, which Senlin has been using as his personal journal. The journal reveals Senlin's hallucinatory episodes. Senlin visits Artuna's mother, who informs him that Pelphia can be infiltrated from the Silk Gardens, a ringdom directly above. Passage below may be bought with books, which Senlin must deliver to a man named Luke Mara, who runs a hostel for Hods in the ringdom. Back on the Stone Cloud, Edith confronts Senlin about his hallucinations. Neither of them are sure why the crumb is still affecting him. Edith agrees not to tell the rest of the crew. Back in the air, the crew raid a tourist ship and steal books before the cloud is attacked by the Ararat, the commissioner's flagship. Though they are far outmatched, the crew manages an escape, though the ship receives heavy damage. The crew dock the cloud on the shore of the Silk Gardens, finding the ringdom in ruins. Broken airships litter the beach below, and Adam claims he can salvage parts of the broken ships while Senlin and Edith disembark to navigate the spider-infested forest. Senlin leaves Adam in charge, with Aaron and Voleta to assist him with the ship repairs. He advises them to leave without him and Edith if the ship is attacked or if they don't return by breakfast. While traversing the forest, Edith reveals that the batteries for her clockwork arm are running out. A stampede of spiders force the two into a deep pool of water nearby. The spiders pass over the pool, 
followed by the spider eaters, and the two pass out after resurfacing. Boletta sneaks off the ship and follows Senlin and Edith. Adam and Aaron loot the beached airships, hoping for food but finding only supplies. In a hidden compartment in one ship, Adam finds a logbook with a bar of pure gold in it. The writer says he found the gold in the Collar of Heaven, but was ultimately chased away. Senlin and Edith wake to find Ahad standing over them. The Ahad, though speaking a different language, manages to lead them to the Golden Zoo, where Luke Mara resides. Bolita follows. Inside the Golden Zoo, Senlin observes scores of Hods working in books and doing chores. He and Edith meet a wheelchair-bound Mara, who listens to Senlin's story and then tells his. He rescued the Hods from the Black Trail, the tunnels the designers put in the walls of the tower for Hod's use to transport goods. Mara suggests the crew can use these tunnels to access Pelphia, but they'll have to pose as Hods to do so. Boletta, observing the zoo, sees a group of Hods kill one of their brethren and bury him in a shallow grave. She shaves her head and poses as a Hod to blend in. A spider eater attacks Adam and Aaron but they survive and begin repairs on the ship with a blossoming and unsure camaraderie. The repairs underway and nearly finished, they wait for the others, hopeful yet worried. Senlin and Edith are put in a cage with the door cracked open. They notice the books the Hods have been working on are all methodically blacked out. Senlin also spots five pictures exactly like Ogier's of the girl on the beach. He hallucinates Maria once more and passes out. He wakes to find Valletta in the cell, bald, and explaining her plans of escape. She's rigged an explosion in the zoo, and has brought a rope to descend while the chaos from the explosion mounts. After a battle with the pursuing Hods, the crew escapes the Silk Gardens, bound for the Sphinx's ringdom as a last resort. In his cabin that night, Senlin and Edith discuss Edith's past dealings with the Sphinx. She explains that she signed her name away in exchange for care when she lost her arm. She's now a Wakeman, a tower guard at the Sphinx's disposal. He can call on her services at any time, but hasn't done so yet. The Red Hand is revealed to be one of these Wakemen as well. Senlin believes he can use Ogier's painting as leverage to force the Sphinx to repair their ship and fix Edith's arm. In addition to the painting, Senlin feels his knowledge of Mara's Hod revolution would also be valuable to the Sphinx. The Sphinx resides at the tower's peak, just under the Collar of Heaven. Weary of fortifications dotting the lower levels, Senlin instructs the crew to pose dead on the ship to keep them from being attacked. Level with the entrance to the Sphinx's domain, Senlin holds Edith's arm high as a signal, and the doors open to admit the stone cloud. Despite plans for Edith to go on alone, the entire crew is dumped from the cloud. Byron, a stag-slash-man hybrid who Edith knows, introduces himself and takes the crew to the Sphinx. They pass through rooms representative of each level of the tower and meet a man fitting Edith's earlier description, the Sphinx, who indeed looks like a spoon. The Sphinx inspects Edith's arm, asking what she's done to it. He tells Ferdinand, his animatronic guard, to attack Senlin if he says anything, and mentions he has an eye that would work well to replace Adam's lost one. Senlin begins bargaining, but is interrupted by the Sphinx, who tells him he knows where Maria is. 
The Sphinx says he can fix their ship and have Senlin to her tomorrow if only he'll let his crew stay behind. Senlin rejects the offer. The Sphinx asks about Ogier's painting, which he calls the Bricklayer's Granddaughter, and instructs Senlin to check the bottom corner for a series number. It's number three of 64, each with subtle variations on the original. Senlin informs the Sphinx that Mara has five and asks about the Bricklayer. The Sphinx says he's trying to carry on his work. After this conversation, Senlin begins bargaining again. The two men eventually form a contract. In exchange for information on the Hod Revolution, Senlin wants the Stone Cloud repaired, a letter of introduction to Pelphia, information about Maria's whereabouts, and Edith's arm fixed and returned to her. Before agreeing to these terms, the Sphinx demands Senlin be sober when he signs the contract, revealing that the painting of Senlin's wife is covered in white crumb. The Sphinx instructs Senlin to find a specific book in his bottomless library. Days pass, and while Senlin searches the library, Edith encourages Adam to escape, afraid the Sphinx will convince him to receive a new eye. Adam agrees to go, and the two escape to the top of the tower. Adam finds streaks of gold embedded in the flat rock at the tower's peak, but he and Edith are accosted by a group of soldiers in rubber suits armed with electric wands. They recognize Adam, but not Edith. They ask Adam to come with them, and Adam agrees on the condition that they let Edith go. Adam leaves Edith with parting words for his sister. Tell the little owl not to forget my birthday. Chasing her squirrel through the air ducts, Valletta falls into the Sphinx music room, where he is retired for the evening. The two become fast friends and begin to secretly spend their evenings together. The Sphinx reveals that she's an old woman, she shows Valletta a jar of the substance that she uses in the machines, a liquid able to hold an electric charge. After a few nights of these meetings, Aaron confronts Valletta, who admits to the nightly excursions, but leaves out her meetings with the Sphinx. Edith returns and informs Aaron and Valletta of Adam's departure. Upon hearing his parting words to her, Valletta recognizes the code as one they used when they first entered the tower. It means to check the Owl Gate on August 23rd, his birthday. Byron shows Edith that they have the Red Hand, alive and recovering from his fall. The Sphinx informs Edith that she wants her to dispel the myths, remind the ringdoms of her power and their responsibilities, and confront the threat of the Hods. The Sphinx would allow Edith to kill other Wakemen in the process if necessary. Edith agrees. They form a new contract and Edith gets a new mechanical arm. Senlin keeps a journal while wandering the library and withdrawing from Crumb. He finds himself thinking less often of Maria and more often of Edith, mostly of her strength and resilience. After many days of fruitless searching, he feels he's losing his mind. On the 10th day, he tries to escape. A pile of books falls on him and he finds himself sliding down a metal chute. The Sphinx is there when he lands. After Senlin produces the book he'd been sent to find, the Sphinx shows Senlin a life-size zoetrope that the bricklayer designed for the 64 paintings of the girl at the beach. Senlin gives his print number three when the Sphinx requests it. She installs it in the proper place on the device. She's collected 36 of the paintings, and the device brings the paintings to life using motion and mirrors as it spins. Senlin sees a number in the incomplete animation 
and the Sphinx informs him that it is part of a combination to gain access to the heavens. The Sphinx shows Senlin a vault door with a plaque labeling it the Bridge of Babel. She explains that instead of a tower, this structure is a bridge to the heavens, the rest of the universe, or at least the beginnings of a bridge. Inside the vault is a plan to restart the work. The bricklayer planned this all and distributed the paintings throughout the ringdom so each level would hold a piece of it and would have to cooperate to achieve this vision. The Sphinx doesn't trust the others in power and has resolved to put it together on her own. Boletta and Aaron nurse Edith back to health after her new arm is attached. The Sphinx visits Aaron, who asks her to help with pains she's been having. The Sphinx reveals that Aaron is just going through menopause. The crew, lacking Adam, reunite. That night, Senlin visits Edith and they kiss. They don't notice the butterfly on the wall watching them. The next day, the Sphinx brings the crew together and present them with a substitute ship. Theirs won't be ready for some time, so she's loaning one of hers. She wants Edith to captain it instead of Senlin. Senlin happily gives up his leadership position and the crew pledges their loyalty to their new captain. When the Sphinx is alone, she reviews the videos her butterflies have recorded. She sees Edith and Senlin kiss. Byron witnesses this recording. The Sphinx tells Byron to accompany the crew as she's afraid Edith might not be as focused as she should be. When Byron is gone, the Sphinx watches footage from another butterfly. This footage is of Maria with a baby girl and a mysterious man. The man tells her the doctor told her to stay in bed. Maria says she just wanted to see the baby and make sure she's all right. She asks if he won't blame her and the man promises he won't before asking Maria to come back to bed. Cool. <laughs> wow, there's so much there. Okay, 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 okay. So it wasn't enough, Josiah, Mr. Bancroft, if you will. It wasn't enough that you had Edith and Senlin kiss. They hooked up. Did you see that coming? I did. However, I was very surprised it happened so early, but I really liked it because so often, you know, you wait till like the very end of the book and it ends with this kiss. And it's like, I don't know. I kind of like the progress that it's happened already. And I'm like, cool, we got that behind us. And it also kind of introduces a whole new problem. Wait, that's a, <laughs> yeah, this is uh, what? Yeah, what? like his whole motivation <laughs> is trying to get his wife back. Yeah, this is going to be quite the conflict, as the yeah. literary professors like to say. But the solution is already kind of hinted at a little bit because she's obviously had a kid with another person. Okay, so okay, so, so we are we are jumping we are jumping from the beginning all the way to the very, very end. True. Let's what you know what this is the juicy stuff. Let's just everyone's read of this. Okay, so let's just hey everybody, we're getting to the juicy stuff. We'll work our way back. We'll work our way back forward. Yeah. I want to talk about Maria having a baby. Okay, Me too. Because all right, do you think it's Senlin's baby or do you think it's this guy's baby? Because I didn't really realize. I mean, I had like a working kind of knowledge of how much time had been passing, but not really specifically. Ten months has ha- has gone by since the beginning of Senlin Ascends. Now, I'm not a doctor, but I think a baby takes nine months. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if the math is correct here. I don't think it's Senlin's kid. I don't think so either. Yeah. But, but- I mean... <laughs> unless, <laughs> they, unless they smashed like right before they left... Which makes sense. They're on their honeymoon. They're on their honeymoon. They're on so their they honeymoon. Be smashing. And so, like, the kid is probably a month old. It said it was like a it had like the wrinkled newborn face. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. So, okay, 
but that would also mean <laughs> okay so this that would also mean that maria hooked up with someone like what a month like into, real quick really fast but yeah but <laughs> under duress i also don't really blame maria because a month is a pretty good amount of time to realize that this tower is just a total disaster Right. right, like she doesn't like, know. This if is Sedlin like your is new dead. life now. Yeah, Sedlin's had clues. Maria doesn't know anything, mm -mm. right? So I mean, like at first you're like, man, that was really fast, Maria. But also, I don't know. She's doing pretty well for herself. Right. I don't know. I don't know either. And I also think there's a slight chance. Maybe this is way out of left field, but there's a slight chance that it's Ogier's baby. Mm, I don't think the math works out for that. Maybe really? it does. Um, no, it, I guess it kind of pretty would. close. Like the way that Ogier and Senlin kind of parted ways, just I didn't get that vibe even a little bit. Yeah, maybe you're right. I was just trying to think of things that are unlikely because this book is so full of them, but you're probably right. It's probably not. I don't think it's Senlin's kid. I don't think so either. It's enough. It's a big enough problem. Just, I mean, it's not a problem that Maria has a kid. It's just like for the story. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like <laughs> right. it just throws another complexity in there. Mm -hmm. you know? But like I was saying earlier, it might present. The, or might be the vehicle for the ultimate solution if Senlin ends up being with Edith forever, then she's already got a baby, so maybe she's like eh, falling in love with this other guy. But I don't know. She didn't seem super stoked about him, and she was like trying to protect her baby. Like, don't blame her. Like, blame her for what? What can babies do? It seemed like fairly amicable. Like, I don't know. Yeah, like, I don't know. He was giving it's me hard a little to say. Bit a... It's hard to say. It's like half a page. Right. And like, who blames babies for things? I think she was asking the guy not to blame Maria, like her. Oh. her, her... <laughs> <laughs> oh, like, what would you blame the baby for? I don't know. That's what I was wondering. She's like, don't blame her. And I was like, did she say don't? I think she says don't blame her. Oh, yeah. Let's look at it. Let's let's consult. The okay. Book. Let's consult. I know exactly where it is. It's the oh, very do you last nice. page. Oh. Yep, she does say you won't blame her. I'm sorry that I made fun of you for thinking that he was blaming the baby. Oh, no. <laughs> it wouldn't be the first time that I was wildly incorrect about something. Um, uh, but yeah, you won't blame her. You promise you won't? And like, what? Maybe she's referring to the nurse. No, there's no way. <laughs> I'm digging way too hard. <laughs> like, what did the nurse do? Yeah. And oh, also, while we're here, what a beautifully poetic last uh, youth from the Sphinx. That has so much meaning to it because he just gets done saying that like two pages earlier, like a page earlier about Senlin and Edith kissing. Okay, so we find out that the Sphinx is actually this old woman, right? Mm -hmm. Do you ever watch Futurama? I have, but not, not very much. <laughs> I immediately thought of Mom from Futurama. I don't know if you've Who's seen Mom? that. I don't know. I don't know. No Mom. Like she, she makes like the robot oil. I don't know. You'd have to watch this. <laughs> I'm sure someone listening to the episode knows exactly what I'm talking about. <laughs> okay, Let's well, move on. <laughs> what about her? Is it because she looks like it? or Just like, um, no, I mean, it's hard to explain if you haven't seen the show. We're moving on. <laughs> okay, what do you think the Sphinx looks like? Um, I think it's like a mask. It's like a big, bulbous, like metal mask that's like kind of concave. Okay. Because it refers a lot to the way that Semlin sees himself, like in the reflection. Yeah. It's like upside down. Which was a cool touch, you know, that he remembered that things get flipped upside down in reflections like that, you know? I was wondering about that. Like, did was Josiah Bancroft just like a spoon? Yeah. <laughs> and then just went with it? I don't know. I don't know what that was all about. Yeah, that's really because it could have, like, the Sphinx could have looked like anything. And why wasn't it, why didn't it look like a, Sphinx. Why is it yeah, called? Yeah, that's Sphinx? a really good. I didn't even think about that. Why is it called the Sphinx? There's a lot before they really get there where 
the narrator, if you will, kind of talks about what people thought the Sphinx was. It was like this almost like mythological mm-hmm. being. Maybe there was a Sphinx before her. Mm. Like there is you know what I mean? probably like maybe, one in the real world Sphinx. Like it might be built on top of an older construction. Right. Like maybe there were multiple Sphinxes. I don't know. Right. It does reference how old she is multiple times though. Which pretty is pretty old. old. Do you think that the Sphinx is the woman in the painting? Oh, yes. Like, do you think that she's the bricklayer's yes. granddaughter? Like, that would make that would make a lot of sense. Totally. This is the first time I'm having that thought, but absolutely, yes, it is. I mean, we've been fooled before with just these two books, but I feel like that would that make, makes sense because she's trying to she's trying to carry on the bricklayer's work, right? Like his legacy is what she's right, and she feels like she's the only one that can really do it. Which I mean, kind of, <laughs> she seems to be the farthest along. Yeah, and she's she's such an interesting character because she's obviously brilliant. She obviously has resources beyond, but she's very careful about who she's given access to her resources because she's like, man. You know, what would they do if I gave them my Colossus, <laughs> you know? It's kind of interesting. Like, this, the whole end sequence of the book kind of felt like Lothlorien in Fellowship of the Ring almost. Yeah. Where they all kind of, like, go chill somewhere and then get re-outfitted for the rest of their adventure. And, you know, obviously the elves aren't very sinister, but the Sphinx has her own ends that she's trying to reach obviously but it was just this weird mix of kind of everybody being pretty relaxed most of the uh-huh. time it seemed with the exception of Senlin who was losing his mind in a infinite <laughs> library right. i love that Me so that was too. weird that whole that his whole journal entry thing was uh, really and, weird uh, so cool to shift perspectives from to, now we're reading from the first person uh what a cool way to explain his necessary growth and um, rehab, I guess, from Crumb. I mean, he's going through withdrawals, really, apparently, really harsh withdrawals in an environment that would probably make anybody go crazy, just sober, you know, or not going through withdrawals, I should say. But I just really loved it when he was like, spends so much, he spends a little bit of time there thinking about Edith. Yeah. He's just like, ah, you know what? I'm just going to say it. <laughs> Edith is pretty. <laughs> <laughs> I straight up laughed when I read that. Edith yeah. is pretty. He's like been hiding you know his what? crush on her from himself the entire time. Right. I know. It reminded me of like a like a kid just being like, you know what? I really like her. Yes. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. I had because I, I had been meaning to ask you. You know, I, I thought of the question when I was like, I don't know, like two thirds of the way through the book. I was like, oh, I'm gonna ask Chad if he thinks that they're gonna hook up because they're obviously not going to in this book. And then they did. Right. And they're kind of stoked about it. We have no, like, we've yet to have a, I'm feeling guilty from Senlin or Mar or Edith. What do you think about the two of them, like, together? I, I like them a lot, you know, and obviously struggling through something, you know, like hard times and over, overcoming, like, stressful circumstances and things like those sort of situations can bond two people very quickly. But I think they're a really good, they're a really good match. They just, like, complement each other. One has, you know, one is, like, a natural leader which is uh, Edith, obviously, then Senlin is a really good, you know, he's more of a academic follower, but he was forced into the leadership role earlier because he kind of needed to evolve that side of him and be a little bit more, he needed to be more confident. That's what it was and learn that he was capable. And that was the, him being leader of the ship was kind of the, the vehicle that made that happen. But I think he'll be a better first mate. Yeah, I think he will too. I mean, um, he was a pretty 
terrible pirate. Yeah. They were all pretty <laughs> terrible pirates. They were all such bad pirates. Yeah, like, Senlin isn't the best captain. They're kind of dragging along and barely scraping by. It's such a terrific way to start the book because they're running out of options immediately. There's so much desperation there, and it really makes you want to keep reading. Like, I have to find out what they're going to do to get out of this situation, and as soon as it looks like they might, they have to go do something even more dangerous. Right. And it just keeps spiraling and spiraling. What was your favorite part of the book? I have to say the ending sequence, probably Just the last like that. 30 yeah. pages. Yeah. It was such a unique ending. Like typically, you know, we have like the big fight or a confrontation with a big baddie or right. something like that. This, we had a, uh, like a, a resupply. Like it was just such a weird ending. It was like if you stopped fellowship, like right when they left Lothboria. Yeah, exactly. It was like, what? But it worked because it was also so interesting and so marinated in that magical journey juice the library sequence i have to say might be my favorite part it was clever it was really deep and like made me think a bunch the cat being in there was the perfect companion for him i got a little emotional a few times it was like he was on a spirit quest he, that's ex oh well said yes he was on a spirit quest and that's kind of what needed to happen because that whole he, he's obviously becoming a new person. He's changing. And he needed a spirit quest, a little mushroom trip out in the desert or something, to re not only realize that, but kind of take control of it. To acknowledge, hey, I'm growing as a person. I'm becoming a different person. And through this process, I've learned that I'm actually powerful. I have power and can assert myself in this world. And now I need to do that on my own changing process so I can be deliberate and intentional about the person that I become. So I don't lose parts of myself that are valuable, like morality or, you know. Yeah, like a really good example of that is when the Sphinx offers him, you know, he says, or she says, I should say, well, like I can outfit you right now and I'll take you exactly where Maria is. You know, you just have to leave your crew here and let me do whatever I want with them, basically. Right. And Senlin, I mean, Bancroft kind of fakes us out. Yeah. But I mean, Senlin is essentially like, what kind of person would I be when I finally reunite with her if I do that? I wouldn't even be the same guy. That same sentiment is kind of carried across in the first book, too. But now it's even more interesting because it's like, well, no, you're not going to be the same guy because you're, you're really kind of crushing on this other person. Right, so. right. And, you know, <laughs> they're, uh, which for good reason, like him and the other, him and his student that he marries, like there's a huge gap in their age. And it sounds like they're very different yeah. type of people. Like, she seems like she'd be besties with um, Valita. I don't know. I mean, like, I think that Edith just compliments him in the sense that I feel, I feel like they kind of balance each other out. Mm -hmm. Like, Mario was good for him, too. You know, like, to have this kind of, I guess, for lack of a better word, like, love triangle. It's not really a love triangle, but it's just like... Almost. Like, you don't have to have someone be really incompatible with somebody else for them to be attracted to someone else. Right. You can have them be attracted and compatible with two different people almost equally for different reasons. Mm -hmm. And that's way more interesting. And that's what this situation Good is. Call. Like, I honestly yeah, yeah, do think that, yeah, like, I don't think that, I think that Bancroft was really clever in building up what Maria and Semlin had. There's a lot of backstory there. They seem to actually be pretty good for each other for yeah, the most part. Yeah, they're kind part. of besties. Yeah. And there's and there's attraction there. There's mm -hmm. real attraction there. It's like Which I'm so glad needed. that yeah, I'm so glad that he didn't just like pull down Maria's character 
to build up Senlin's attraction to this other person. Right. That would have been boring. That would have been boring and lame. And Edith really needed that because she's kind of having like self-conscious problems, especially now that her fake robot arm is even larger. You know, the first thing she's like, I couldn't even like wear a dress or dress myself without help. I had to rip off a sleeve. And she really needed Senlin to be like, oh, I'm digging that arm. <laughs> or I'm digging you. I know, what did she arm. say? What did she say? Like, uh, I feel like I've got a rain gutter attached to me or something like <laughs> yeah, that. Something like that. Uh, okay, I have a question for you. While we're on the note of romance, I kept thinking, ooh, ooh Adam <laughs> and Aaron? And then well, Aaron yeah, and ma- well, no, I'm no. so confused. Yeah, I mean, like, Aaron, Aaron is like in her 50s right. and Adam's like in his early 20s. That was another I mean, question. Not that, that, old is Adam. not that that's verboten or anything, but what's, it is. What's um, that word used? Oh, it's German for forbidden. Oh, verboten. <laughs> yeah. Nice. I don't know why I did that. <laughs> but not not that that's wrong or anything, but it's just um I think that Adam and Aaron have like kind of a um almost like a mother son kind of thing and that's like Aaron and Voleta have or Volita or whatever um they have kind of the mother daughter thing okay. kind of going. Well, it switched from like sisterly to like she's still holding my hand. And I was like, "What?" I know, and then like she's like, "Are you calling me pretty yeah, or something like yeah. that?" Yeah, yeah. I see, I see what you're. I see what you're getting at. I mean, maybe who knows? I don't know. I just kept thinking it was like a little romantic foreshadowing, but then it's like two consenting adults. Like if he's twenty and she's uh, uh, fifty-five, like who am I to say? Yeah, love is love. But I don't. I don't know if that's gonna go down. I, I mean, I don't even know what's going on with Adam. I have a you know. Speaking of Adam, oh um, yeah. Like what the hell happened up on the top what of that tower? The hell. Who were those people? I why did they know. know Adam? What? Why? why do they have such crazy technology? Why is their floor made of gold? We're not doing time travel, are we? I don't think so. Here's here's what I think. I think that those. I think they're called the Spring Men or something like that. The Lightning Men. Um, maybe they're uh, they're on top. The the people that are in the rubber suits on top of the tower. I think that they're somehow in some cor- some sort of communication or in service to the Sphinx, okay. in some capacity, and the Sphinx has they've seen uh, like some sort of record of adam's abilities maybe i don't know which would be what just like engineering me- mechanically inclined i mean he seems like pretty good at it but yeah. i don't know why that would make them i mean maybe the sphinx is like the sphinx kind of seemed to take uh if not like a full liking to adam like did not seem to have any outright hostility towards him maybe the sphinx wants to work with adam in some way okay so edith asks them on top of the tower you know he's like how do you know my name is this some sort of trick and then he's like a trick the officer scoffed and then edith says do you recognize me and the blonde officer surveyed her face briefly no perhaps you're part of the later story yeah that's why i was like is there some kind of weird time travel thing going on here yeah and if there is josiah please drip feed it to us (laughs) please be gentle (laughs) yes Yeah, because part of a later story, and they know what his mother made him on his birthday when uh, he was twelve. That was 12. so weird. All of that was weird. Man, that was like, have they been watching him the entire time? Have they been bouncing around? And I don't know. I don't know. But that's that's like something that it's it'd be fun for us to sit on that subject for a little bit on this podcast. But like, honestly, I just don't think we're gonna no. get very far. It's just something that's we don't have enough pieces, and, right? Why did Edith not ask? the sphinx about that i don't know 
Something tells me maybe it happened off the page. Because I know they had to lie to the Sphinx to say that he just left during the night. But I don't know. I think we'll find out in the next book. Adam's not going anywhere. I mean, no. he is going places, but we're going to find out more yeah. about Adam. I think that was like the biggest, probably the biggest, one of the biggest mysteries. Mm-hmm. I have to give Josiah Bancroft so many, so many plots. Man, if this episode was a piece of candy, it'd be called the Gushers because uh, it'd be Gushers because <laughs> that's all I'm going to do here. But I have to applaud him because this book is so full of my favorite magical journey juice as they go from tower to tower to ringdom to ringdom and it changes drastically. But then right at the end there, we get tons of things answered. I mean, we basically get introduced to the person who knows it all which needs to happen, but like it also removes a little bit of that mysterious, that pull in the book. But right as that's happening, he introduces two things. One, the sparking men, and then two, the door that the Sphinx doesn't even know what's behind. So boom, magical journey juice back. Reactivated. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, I think, I think it was really cool because it gave the story um, direction, like more direction and I think I think I might have mentioned this in the podcast before this, but I don't think that the whole story could have been Senlin finding his wife. It gave the story the real direction it needed to go, and it turned it into high fantasy, like epic fantasy. Yeah. I mean, this feels epic now. It feels like, um, and I don't remember the exact line, but I think that it sounds like the tower is really important for the world right the line where the sphinx is like this is the the like the the world would lose like if they if the tower if luke Mar- mata brings the tower down the world would lose its access to heaven or something yeah like something that. like that yeah that's all really i don't know what the hell that is like yeah <laughs> really i mean you know when we talk it all out it sounds really complicated right like okay there's 64 paintings and they're all a little bit different than each other and they're all kind of scattered around these 64 ringdoms and some of them have more than others and like uh and then if you if you get them all together and put them in this, this animatronic thing and then it's and you get it to spin with all these mirrors it'll it'll uncover a combination and then that combination like unlocks this door but it all works. It all totally works. I'm I'm totally on board with this. I understand everything that's going on. Wasn't too bloated. No, it doesn't feel bloated at all. No. I mean, if anything, if anything, I feel like I'm being very much like drug along here, not knowing enough. Like I want to know more. I want to know more about everything. I want to know more about the brick, the bricklayer. Yeah, the bricklayer. Uh huh. Yeah, the bricklayer. Um, I mean, I I feel like we didn't see enough of of Mara. I mean, we'll, we'll probably see a lot of him in the next book, but from where I'm sitting, he's he's the hot king. Me too. Right? I mean, like, he's got to be. Oh, yeah. I have it written down. I think he is the hot king. <laughs> right. I mean, unless Senlin becomes the hot king oh. or something, or there's another, or there's a different person who's in charge of a hot revolution. But, but that being said, what is his objective here? Like, I mean, does he know how important these paintings are or specifically what they do? Or does only the Sphinx know what they are? And Mara kind of knows they're important, but doesn't know exactly what they do. But he just knows that he wants to hoard them because they are important. I mean, I'm really excited to see what all that is about. Right. It felt it felt like that was just barely touched on. Oh, it was like basically a cool. Let's go in here. Let's fix. It was, they needed to go there to fix the ship and to give them the let's hit the Sphinx route. But uh, they were barely there. I mean, they went in there and then escaped immediately when they realized that they were trapped without actually being trapped. That was a really weird paragraph too when <laughs> Senla was just like, "Well, see if the door is open, then we don't What was the reasoning behind that again?" He said 
because we don't <laughs> feel trapped it's like a way of trapping yeah but if we tried to leave they would stop us but he's trying to make it feel like it's like schrodinger's like prison whole, yeah. <laughs> well said <Freddy laughs> schrodinger's prison yes yeah exactly um do you remember why the hods killed that other hod no idea what that was okay me neither i really don't yeah i, just, like, I, I don't the, i read like, it twice lawn? they just do it stop they, it. that was yeah um <laughs> valetta's so cool she's Valetta so cool is, she's my she's my personal favorite secondary character i mean I, I really like edith and i like aaron and i like adam but valetta is just fucking awesome she's just mm-hmm. shaves her head she just shaves her head she's like Whatever. no no thoughts no no any no hesitation at all just i'm gonna shave my head get some explosives together let's break you guys out <laughs> she's just, a fairy yeah she's like a nymph you know she just like lives in the now interestingly she has probably the least amount of character progression like everyone else is changing and growing and i don't mind it it's not a bad thing know, but though. she's pretty much like doing her thing i would disagree really? i would disagree but okay well there's like that part where edith kind of comes out on the ship and she kind of reprimands everybody like oh you've yeah. been fucking around this whole time like it's time for us to like really get our, our our shit together here and like start acting like a real crew or we're gonna drop you off somewhere right and then so but valetta like that that she hears it and then um she kind of starts feeling adam getting a little bit more distant oh, as yeah. well so there's all of that and i think that she's doing quite a bit of like introspection okay you're it's, right it's not as much it's not as much as senlin's growth or maybe even like aaron's mm-hmm. but there it is there i mean yeah. i think the most static character in this whole book has probably been adam i don't know though <laughs> <laughs> i might have to disagree i don't know let's, <laughs> because let's, let's hear it he um he has when does he have his realization i think it's when he's about to die under the ship being attacked by the when they're they're in the silk silk zoo the silk something the silk gardens. the silk gardens yeah they're in the silk gardens he's being attacked by the spider eater and he's surrounded by flames and he's like well here we go and oh and he's also being about to be like buried by the sand so there's like three ways that he's definitely going to die and he has this like realization that he's basically been living life as like his sister's keeper and that like his whole yeah, self-identity yeah. is tied up in keeping track of her and she doesn't really need him anymore. You know the, what? I'll go ahead and concede out to that, grow yeah. as well. Yeah, you're right. I don't think anybody was really static. No, nah, you're brilliant, right. We were both brilliant wrong. Bancroft. <laughs> yeah. Fantastic um, job. And I think him going to the tower thing is kind of what he needed to become the next phase. He needs not only the mental separation that he's acquired, but I think he needs some physical separation from Valida as well. Maybe he'll right. become king of the sparking men. Maybe he'll become the hot king. Oh I have no God. idea. I mean, if these books have taught me anything, um, much like the tower has taught Senlin, it's just you just really have no idea what to expect with this. I mean, no idea. However, I do think I was onto something there with the gold being a very good conductor of electricity. They're called the sparking men. So that's why their floor has gold veins in it. Why? I'm not sure, but something to do with electricity. I mean, gold wasn't really mentioned like that much. Well, I mean, it's like the they're books? like it's str- it, the streets are made from gold was like the rumor. And then when he gets up there, he sees like marbled veins of it in the floor. And I'm wondering, like, who makes a roof out of gold? They're not collecting energy for the Sphinx because her energy comes from beneath. That's why I'm kind of. I'm. Is there something above that? Even I, don't I mean, know. that's. Is there someone that's even bigger than the Sphinx? Is there somebody that's even pulling the Sphinx's strings? Because I mean, at the end of the, not the very end, but you know, towards the end of the first book, it's kind of like, oh, the commissioner. 
that's the that's the big head honcho right. here, right? And it's like not even close. Not even not close. Even. Speaking of the commissioner, where the hell? What is that? Just not a thing anymore. The error at like. Oh yeah, you know, well you couldn't. They lost him. They kind of just stopped worrying about him. Um, I guess so. I mean, they're always trying to do their things with him in the back of their minds. You know, just I mean, like not avoid really the last him. like third of the book. Yeah, but the I last third, they're uh. Uh, with the they're space basically up. yeah they're pretty high up there and uh what did you think about Sunland's plan to get that high up there like we're just I gonna beat that <laughs> i was thinking that it was, was kind so of cool. bold like the... what if someone's like loot yeah me too um i mean I, I thought uh it was cool that the chapter ended and they're like what are we gonna do and he's like we're all gonna die yeah <laughs> that's <laughs> the end of the chapter it's like yes um okay describe to me what your the the picture that your brain painted as to the condition of the stone cloud their ship after the ararat fight like how messed up was it what did it look like to you because they're dropping things off the side of the boat like left and right yeah so like my i mean my visual in my head just just to help it along is i'm just i'm just picturing like a big giant like canvas balloon that is tethered to what looks like a man of war, like an actual ship. Okay, okay. That's just for my own. I know that that's probably not what it actually. Oh, that's what I think of like. too. Oh, okay, like cool. a galleon yeah, I mean, with a. Well, because the Ararat is like a floating castle. Yeah. Right. So it's like, and then with the the house that they they robbed, those that doctor like Taurus is an an actual house. Right. What an up you know, like so sort of idea, you know? Yeah, totally. Um, but I think that the ship that they're on is more of like a. A ship. Yeah, yeah. It's got a um, galley in it. But it's probably not. And then I think that the condition that it's in is like, yeah, they're falling apart. Okay. It's just because I think like, like there's sideways slant. I don't know. Yeah, they're like there's holes in it. Okay. To, I mean, like, okay. Um, speaking of holes in the ship, one of my very favorite parts of this entire book, including the book before it, is where they're getting attacked and Semlin shoots a harpoon onto a train through the back of the ship. <laughs> stupid, but amazing. Stupid and amazing. Stupid. I remember reading it just like, this is easily the dumbest thing that's happened in these books, and I love it. And I love it because it ruins the whole ship, and it's so like Semlin to do something so rash right and like reckless that, that totally works it did work <laughs> i couldn't believe and, then I love... and i love how it like went into the train too <laughs> like right it's like it, he like bancroft just kind of goes into like what it's like inside the train with right. that thing that <laughs> thing like crashes <laughs> through it and then uh afterwards edith is kind of little uh short with him and he's like trying to figure it out and she's like well you destroyed my room and it was mine and i really liked it <laughs> but it also had all of her like Stuff uh, in it. Of, oh, of battery yeah. juice or whatever. Yeah, that's true. Man, what a cool. Okay, okay. Here's a question. During that fight, we take a different perspective and we zoom over to random yeah, guy. Mario. What? Mar? Oh, the maid. <laughs> oh, dude. I didn't I'm sorry, know. I interrupted you. I no. thought you. I thought you had landed on that too. That's nope. definitely Mario. Oh, well, watching, I was going to ask right? you what was that was that just like a cool way to tell the story or was that like kind of come back around and yes of course it's maria wait okay well i mean it couldn't it... it could not be because she would probably have recognized senlin but i i mean in my head i was like that's probably mario with some because it was like a guy from pelfia yeah yeah i was watching that yeah he was like a researcher or something that someone from um that like one of the family members commissioned or something yeah he was like well, no, I thought he was one of the family members. Oh, maybe he is. Okay. 
Yeah, and he's just like, darling, come look at this. These <laughs> these pirates are fighting each other. Yeah, but other. it was his maid. And She's very uncomfortable with his uh, yeah, approaches. Yeah, but like maybe maybe Maria had been kind of assigned to be a maid. That's um, true. By the, I don't know. I don't know why I like immediately jumped to it being. I don't Maria. know why I didn't. <laughs> I mean, I guess it would make sense for it to just be like an interesting way of showing it all and maybe it would maybe bancroft thought it'd be a good idea to have two people observing it and talking about it with some kind of dynamic between them instead of just describing literally what's happening on the ship in some kind of like zany it is a good show don't tell um but like why not use that further as a way to kind of like hint at maria's situation right no, but yeah. I mean, I guess she would have she would have like recognized Senlin, but he was really far away too. So I don't know. I think it was Maria personally. Yeah, that's a good prediction. I I'm like shocked that I didn't think of that during it. But I was yeah. My question was just like, do you think that's going to come back around? Because I think it is going to come back around. But I didn't think that it was Maria. I didn't even kind of think about it. And now, and still, I don't know because like, would she have been pregnant then? Who is this dude that she's like clearly not into? And like, who was she with? Was whoever right. she with made her a maid? Like, that seems pretty lowly for if you're going to take if a rich person's going to take a wife. Like, I don't know. Yeah, that is kind I of. Yeah, no, I think. I mean, I'm I'm like sixty forty on it. Like, I think. Yeah. Probably you're you're probably right, but like I don't know. Maybe we'll ask Bancroft. Yeah. When he comes. <laughs> well, we'll know by then, hopefully. Yeah. Oh, if, yeah. If we don't, we'll be like, what? Oh, yeah. By the way, everyone. Josiah Bancroft has agreed to be interviewed. If you have any questions for him, please email us at book.reviews.kill and we will make sure that your question gets answered. Oh, another part that I really enjoyed was um, the very beginning of the book when Senlin meets with that guy's mom in that weird room made out of yarn. Oh, yeah. Man, visually such a vivid picture of yeah, being Altura's suspended mom. by a bunch of colored thread and he's like sinking down into it and it's just the whole room is made out of thread and suspended like thousands of feet above the air yeah so, cool. so and there's like the um the the pegs that have the coats of uh so he, he like walks in and it's a suspended way above the ground and there's these pegs that have coats and hats on them and he's like, that's weird. And then she's like, can you please remove your coat and hat? And then he does. <laughs> and then he realizes, like, oh, those are people that fell. <laughs> right. Those people never left. That's and why took they're their co- coat. Oh my God. Oh no. <laughs> and then even then, when he lies to her about taking crumb because he's not actually aware that he's taking crumb at that point, she snips a string and he drops like a foot. You know, she's about to drop him, oh, and then yeah. she kind of realizes, the truth about yeah. And, <laughs> and I love how there's like that part. I think it's I can't remember the exact structure of it, but there's like that part where um Valletta and Adam and Aaron are kind of in that bar, and they piss off that one guy because Valletta took his squirrel or whatever. Man, if <laughs> she throws him out if, the window, if people are listening to this and they haven't read the book, they're gonna have no idea what we're talking. Oh man, about. we're all over the place too. <laughs> um, but like, like Sandlin's talking to this woman, and then this he just hears a scream, and this this man dropping past the rubies, and it's just like, <laughs> like the rest of his crew is off, just like completely not doing it. This isn't it, bestie. Right. What was the um, phrase when he the guy goes into? If you go into the bar, he's like, "You get blacked, black, something." Basically, oh, eighty six. If you murder someone, or yeah, what a nice touch to that. Like, no scene. killing, no something. 
and then uh yeah and then every time you know depending on how good of a mood the crowd is in they'll repeat the phrase with the barm just a what a cool every place they go has something unique and interesting every person adds to the story is unique and interesting it feels so lived in it feels so this whole world feels really lived in what what a good way to say that yes he's this world is very very lived in like we constantly say uh or use the phrase you know this character does or does not have a life off of the page all these characters have lives off the page how'd you feel about uh all the spiders being a a little arachnophobe oh my god that one's rough (laughs) okay so this is what i did i thought of you i thought of you (laughs) oh thank you um this is what i did in my brain they i changed them a little bit to (laughs) um let's see what what was i watching recently that had oh yeah in um in the mandalorian show there's like these little spiders there's a scene where they get stuck in this ice world and there's this spirus and they and they almost kind of look like machiney kind of spiders like pointed little like tip for the, i don't know they were less spidery in my head because <laughs> i was having problems reading that just being like like at one point Valida is covered in them yeah I love like that. completely covered thousands in the, of tiny oh, legs my gosh and <laughs> i thought there was going to become something it was going to be a thing that she gets bitten because she's like i'm feeling kind of tingly oh, but yeah. then it just goes never way never is mentioned again I mean, we don't need to like keep heaping problems on these poor <laughs> yeah, people. Like, it's like another thing they have to go deal with. That's true. She does get bitten. Yeah, she does get bitten. Yeah, yeah. yeah just once yeah. though, and then it like yeah, she's, she's like she like shakes off. The... It wasn't that bad. It wasn't that bad. Yeah. Okay, so there's a quote that the recorder. Um, oh, I can't remember, but I can remember the shopkeeper named her son. I think his his name was um Altura. Altuna. Altuna. Something like that. Uh, our... But yeah, so her quote that I really really like is history is a love letter to tyrants written in the blood of the overrun the forgotten the expunged a love letter to tyrants like it's like you know it's like kind of the same thing of like you know history is written by the victorious yeah yeah but this takes it one step deeper and it's like well the victorious isn't necessarily writing it but historians who don't want to be beheaded are (laughs) you know her advice about history is basically be wary of the lies told by others and especially the ones we tell ourselves and then that chapter ends by Senlin thinking and dreaming about this Luke Mara person, who he's going to be and the help he's going to give him and like how he's going to fix all of their problems, basically doing exactly the thing that the recorder told him to be wary of <laughs> right. immediately after hearing that. I know it's funny after everything he's been through, he's still, I mean, it's like he's, he's hesitant, but he's still He's still kind of trusting. Oh, he's so optimistic. Oh, the guy's tried to educate the Huds. He wants books. I know he goes. It's like <laughs> when they go into the Golden Zoo. When they go, when they go into the Golden Zoo, he's just like, "Look at all these Huds reading. I like to see a Hod reading. This is great." <laughs> Turns out it's the Luke Mara's efforts at brainwashing them, trying to teach them to like not think for themselves. Which, while I disagree with that wholeheartedly, makes a lot more sense yeah. in this particular situation. I really liked Luke Marek because um, he really did come across as pretty friendly and pretty understanding of their situation at first. And even um, when Edith kind of, like, Mara's kind of um, not really lecturing them, but just kind of telling his side of everything. And Edith is like, you have no idea what it's actually like to be embedded with this kind of technology. Because, you know, Luke Mara seems to think that all this tech, you know, you can't trust the people that are making all of these advancements and technology right. and stuff like that. 
and then Edith says, you don't know what it's like to live like this. And then he kind of removes his blanket and his legs are made out of metal. Yeah. Um, it's a really interesting character. I, and I am like, that. yeah, I mean, I said I didn't have any criticisms and I, I still don't really. But one thing I am kind of just just kind of bummed out about is that I just really feel like one conversation with that guy just wasn't enough. I wanted yeah, more. Me too. But it'll obviously be in the next book. Yeah. His arc was very, very quick. And okay, I have a question for you. So he's in a wheelchair and you said the metal legs thing, which is now making me realize at one point he was a Wigman. Probably. And then yeah. now his he decided to no longer be, which is why he can't walk because he can't get any more juice for his right. legs from the Sphinx. Um, but oh, then, and he doesn't want to. It sounds like he doesn't want to have anything to do with it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But he there's a scene when they're running through a very thick forest and then they come into a clearing and then, you know, surrounded by what turns out to be the spider eaters. And he's there with all the hods, you know, like looking at him. So when Zen like yeah. shows him the painting, how did he navigate the forest in a wheelchair? I don't really know. Yeah. I don't, I don't, um, he's got carried no or idea. something. Wish I knew. Huh. No idea. Excessive. Yeah, <laughs> they're like hacking it. You know, they're like, yeah, yeah. It's or, really um, Edith is basically like arming I mean, her way maybe... through. Maybe he found some battery juice. Yeah, he just used he it did. like the one time. I don't know. Yeah, he's got some stores yeah. or something. I don't know. I mean, he's got a lot of hods. He does have a Maybe lot. Maybe they like of carried hods. him in there. On the on the point of the hods, you know, it's funny because you think for the longest time like they're the downtrodden, the dispossessed, and. Uh, maybe maybe not maybe they're more nefarious than that and he's like they're talking like when can we stop using this garbly goopin language you know they're obviously deceiving senlin and edith by using a fake language i guess what was the purpose of that tell me your thoughts um mara explained it as a language that the hods develops developed so that they could um talk about their plans in secret right but then when they're killing the other one felita overhears one of them say like something about t talking in this fake language so i don't think it is a real language i mean i think it is and it isn't i think that it's real enough in the sense that they can still communicate with each other when they're trying to be deceptive deceptive um but they don't necessarily want to hmm. mara is able to communicate with his name like coco or something like that i can't remember yeah whichever the one is that came and got him what was your favorite header for a chapter like your favorite quote for oh, the beginnings goodness. of the chapters um i know last books was the quote about sometimes when you're trying to go a direction don't go straight in that direction is the way to get there that was my favorite one of book one gosh these headings for these chapters are just like if you really just stop and think about it there's so much more depth here because not only was bancroft thinking of these really interesting kind of like one to two line sayings or pieces of advice or whatever or musings but he had an author and the name of the book yeah like it adds so much that depth. aren't mentioned in anything else yeah the unlikable alphabet a primer for children by anonymous it's like what is the unlikable alphabet yeah the wifely way the, by the duchess k.a pell yeah the wifely way ones were really funny <laughs> super funny and like so fucked up you know <laughs> right yeah okay there's two of them that I can't decide between that they're my favorites. Um, so the first one is the Sphinx could never reveal himself without losing his essential mystique. To be the Sphinx is to be unknown. If, however, he were a myth, he would be just as unknowable. We can only hope that one day he will emerge and prove once and for all that he does not exist. <laughs> yeah, I really like that one a lot. <laughs> Loved that. Uh, and then 
my, the other one that I really liked that was just a really, this one made me stop and just think for a minute. When introductions are made, never be the first in the reception line. First to curtsy, first forgot, or so the saying goes. Right. That sounds like some bad um, advice on etiquette, but then it's like the more you think about it. Yeah, because I'm always like, hey, I'm Chad, you know, and like, because a lot of people, I'm good at <laughs> yeah, breaking the ice. And so I'm like, man, I'm always first in the reception line. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure people remember you, Chad. Oh, that's good. That's good. You're so memorable. Oh, thank you. Thank you. But it did make me think for a while about how, because if you're, um, if you're like being interviewed, you know, you don't want to, you, you kind of want to be the first or the last one. Yeah, it's just really, really good line. What was your favorite? The man or woman who is rarely lost, rarely discovers anything new. Oh, damn. Yeah, that's a that good one. So good. I mean, that's kind of a, it's a, it's, I feel like it's kind of a variation of, you know, um, the most ignorant people in the world are the ones that have stayed in one spot their entire life. Mm -hmm. But it's still just rarely lost. I, th I, I kind of equated it to like rarely confused, you know, like um, stepping out of your comfort zone, maybe not just physically, but mentally as well. Like you're trying to learn something new um, or it's like you're never going to learn anything new if you're not initially confused about something. Yeah. So that's kind of like how I, I read it. There's one that I can't find that I really liked also that was about, it says something about a bird and then it says never sing. No one likes the bird that sings over the orchestra. <laughs> that's good. And it was like, oh, that's wow, so damn. cool. Like, it's yeah. such a good, you know, like if you have a good skill, like don't always be using it. People will dislike you for that. You know, there's a time and a place yeah. for it. Use it. Don't be humble. Like, you know, don't be falsely humble. But also at the same time, you know, don't be always about it, you know? Or maybe don't make it about you when there's like a bunch of people working at something. Yeah, ooh, that's another good yeah. one. I like this one. Uh, myth is the story of what we do not understand in ourselves. Ooh, that's oh, Josiah. Dang. Okay, while <laughs> so we're good. while we're getting deep here, sure. So in last book or in last episode about the first book, you said that you feel really protective towards Senlin and like kind of his naive optimism and how right. you don't want to see it go away and i don't think that it's going to fully go away just get tempered a little bit but i believe maria her existence within this book or not the real one but the hallucinogen virgin version of her was a wall of protection built so he could remain the Senlin that we all know and love throughout this growth process because she enables him to be like intelligent enough to be realistic and cynical without corrupting his character and personality, kind of putting a distance between who he has to be right now and who we want him to remain as. Yeah. And no, I think you're nailed. You're, yeah. I think you're totally right about that. Cool. Thank you. Sure. Yeah. I was just like, man, what a cool vehicle for, keep for protecting Man, him I've, you know I bet people are good taking drinks every time you say vehicle. oh i know i've said to me what a cool wall what a wall for <laughs> what a cool go-kart i'm sorry what for... a cool go-kart <laughs> a rocket ship yeah i mean and, uh, and he ultimately needs to shed that you know that's his withdrawal period that's his spirit quest thing yeah that he, that he goes on and it's i mean it's like a it's like a weird little little ego death, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. Or uh, some kind of death. While we're also getting deep, I really liked Senlin's self-conversation to himself about the libraries and about how 
Luke Mara is destroying the books. Like who would destroy books? And then he's also like, yeah, but who puts traps in a place of knowledge? <laughs> well, and I, I really like the point that he made that, um, you know, maybe, maybe a full library with full, really nice shelves is very aesthetically pleasing, but a library that's missing books out of it kind of speaks more about the community around that library right. and how actually, if you really think about it, a library with missing books is a lot better than a library full of books. Right. The, the, the knowledge is being used or at least right. hopefully not being not un, if, unless it gets into Luke's hands, then it's getting blacked out. I want to go over one quote that I really enjoyed and then we can move on to predictions and then probably wrap it up. Okay. So my favorite quote in this whole series so far, and I've been really thinking about it a lot is it's better to go forward into ruin than backward into rot. Damn. That's an amazing, amazing quote. I loved it so much. It's, I mean, obviously very, I, I think it sums up a writing lot it down. of not, not just Senlin's character, but uh, some of the secondary characters too. I mean, just this, I, I think that one of the main like themes of this entire series so far, at least seems to be progression, like kind of failing your way to the top. Failing your way you know? to the top. I mean, like you yeah. have to take risks. You have to, you have to take chances. You have to try things you've never tried before. You have to um, second guess yourself in a way that makes you really uncomfortable. And there's a really good chance that it's not going to be great when you move forward through it. But stasis and moving backwards, regressing, guarantees the rot. Right. That is definitely going to happen. You know, and like, I, I mean, I applied that, <laughs> I, you can apply that to your own life. It's like, I mean, like this podcast, for example, you and I are putting tons of time into this, lots and lots of labor. I mean, I have been um, ignoring a lot of other things going on in my life so that I can and, make this a priority moving forward. And, and it could, could end up with um, me and you <laughs> both suffering maybe financially or physically. Right. There might be some ruin or yeah, there might be some ruin, but better to go forward into that with the chance of success and maybe the ruin out of the ruin will come more growth mm -hmm. than not do it and go back to not doing something that's creatively fulfilling and not, you know what I mean? Like, right. Then just sitting there being stale and rotting and not evolving and not moving, not changing, not challenging ourselves. Yeah. I mean, it's, I mean, you could sum it up as just like, take a chance. Yeah. Take the chance. It, yeah, it, you might. Yeah, it might be bad. It might really be bad. There's a really good. It's right. probably going to be bad, you know. Yeah, um, you're probably going to fail, but that's okay. But the rot is almost guaranteed, you know. And obviously, you can't you can't apply it to like every single situation, you know. I mean, like if you're going to rob a bank, and you're like better to go into right. for, forward into ruin than backward. It's like, like crossing maybe a highway. Like, yeah, right. I mean, like. <laughs> like <laughs> I heard on the book reviews kill podcast that forward it's better to go ruin. No, that's not. But uh, I just I love that quote so much. I think I just thought it was so applicable to this series, to the characters, and also to my own life. I just uh, wrote it into my phone in my quotes folder, which because it was so good. Fantastic. It is so good. All right, hit me with uh, one good solid prediction. I'll give you one, and then we can. Uh, it's like almost three in the morning. It Let's is almost three in the morning. <laughs> we should probably do this um, when the sun is up sometime. Yeah, maybe what do we say? should. Maybe we should. That would be. I uh, don't sleep anymore. <laughs> that'd be smart and stuff. I'm going to predict that Adam is going to. He's going to move into a position of power amongst the sparking men, 
and save everyone at some point in the next book. Do you think that the Sparking Men are like a different faction altogether from whatever the Sphinx has going on? I do. Okay. I don't, I think that she's probably aware of them, but I don't, there, that's a lot of mystery and I could be very wrong because I'm going off very like none information, but uh, give me a prediction that you have. Uh, this is kind of, this is a little, it's a little far out, but it's just fun. Okay. Um, I think Senlin is going to find out that Maria has had a baby that's not his and it's not going to mess him up as much as he thought it would. And I think that that's going to be a really uh, a big, huge turning point for him. And it's going to set some priorities straight. Obviously, no idea if that's going to happen. It could be his kid, you know? Yeah. Um, It'll and be like I, the moment I, that he loses the captaincy. He'll be like, that's not fair. And then totally turn the yeah. different corner, you know? Right. I just think, I think that Senlin's going to find out. And when he does, when he finds out that this kid isn't his, that Maria has completely moved on, even though I'm sure she still loves him and, you know, but, um, you know, she did what she could in her situation. I think he's going to be really understanding and he's going to, his, his objective is going to, going to have changed, not just in his love life, but, you know, in his overall existence like what is important to him yeah it's gonna shift um i could be super wrong about that but i could i could definitely see that happening i have a question prediction and then we can uh, wrap up and, and go get some wings here do you think that this book the whole series is going to end with senlin and crew in a spaceship flying <laughs> into the unknown <laughs> i have no idea <laughs> i mean the last book is called the fall of babel Oh, or Babel. I really uh, hope it's a I, metaphorical fall. It's really interesting that Josiah Bancroft was like, call it the fall of Babel. <laughs> yeah, and what's the picture of the on the cover? It's like a woman falling. No, no, the picture on the cover is I think Luke Mara. Oh, and the fall oh yeah. Oh, you're right. It's a bald guy with um, right. who looks mean as fuck with, with a, mechanical the blanket legs. over him. Yeah. I know. You're totally right. And he's got the eye symbol. <gasps> Of the yeah. on his chest, and that's the symbol from that group of the secret society that was referenced yeah, in the first book, right? It's so weird. I man, I think oh you God. and I have a couple really, really terrific books ahead of us. If the next two books in this series are even close to as good as this one was, this will probably be my favorite series of the year, which is weird because we read Greenbone, and Greenbone was amazing. We read Winter Night. Winter Night was amazing. Man, oh. this is such a good year for reading. Dude, The Hot King is the one that has the, a, a girl falling. I know. And it's got that is. electricity shooting up from the bottom, and then there's a little bit of it coming down from the top as well. Maybe it's Valletta. Oh, maybe so. Or Maria. Totally. I love the description of the tower because it, it's molded so much in my mind because at first it was just a big shaft going up, like a tower. And it's not. It's got so many, so much variance. And he mentions like there to be domes and globes and off towers and balconies and all sorts of things. Stick. Oh, man, so cool. All right. Well, I think that's going to do it for us today here on Book Reviews Kill. That has been our recap of Arm of the Sphinx, book two in the Books of Babel Quartet by Josiah Bancroft. And what a wonderful book that was. Oh, my so God. So incredible. Like, I mean, it's like three in the morning right now, but I kind of want to read just like a couple chapters of the next one before I fall asleep because I am in this now. Me too. So engaged. Man, I, wow. I can't 
say enough. I can't give enough kudos to Josiah Bancroft for writing such an intriguing, magical, mysterious story and having it mean and have it be so meaningful and deep and yet also lighthearted. Uh, what about and it's so much? It's like even better because not only am I reading this, I'm reading it with my best friend. Dude. And we've got this whole community here that's reading it with us. You know, even if you're listening to this a couple years in the future, hi, thanks for hanging out with us. We really appreciate you listening, and we hope that you enjoy this book as much as we did. And we look forward to seeing you on the next episode for The Hod King. I almost have tears in my eyes from the beauty of it all. Evan, you are the best book brother there could be, and uh, you all are the uh, best book benders, the best listeners that could be. So, so thank you for joining us. Everybody, hope you have an awesome rest of your day, and of course, happy reading. Bye, everybody.